today we are continuing our series on the book of Mark, which has nothing to do with the Super Bowl. Um, as a pastor, I try to like tie it in. I'm just going to hard transition there. Uh, there's, there's nothing I could do to, to bridge that gap. We're continuing our series in Mark. Um, and we, as a teaching team, we've been in Mark actually for months. And um, I love that. I love coming into this room and knowing that we've built this sort of foundation as a teaching team. We've pushed and pulled and, and prodded, uh, you know, each other's messages and, and things like that. And Mark is such a wonderful book. Um, just a quick synopsis on Mark. It is most likely the very first gospel ever written. Um, it, it, was, it was very clearly influencing especially Matthew and Luke, and we call those the synoptic gospels because they're very similar to one another. Um, but Mark is this sort of like rapid pace, like Mark doesn't come in and say, this is how Jesus was born, and here's, you know, all the like nuanceical things. No, Mark is just like, he jumps straight in, jumps straight into the ministry of Jesus, straight into the craziness of Jesus' life. Uh, it's 16 short but very potent chapters about Jesus. Mark uh, had a great rela- relationship with Peter. There's a lot of backstory that adds uh, to that, but there's a lot for us to, to look at this and, and to really look at this as as close to a gospel of Peter as you could get. You could feel that sort of emotion, that sort of tension that Peter probably felt when he was there, and he was an eyewitness of things that were going on. Mark is very much um, a, a, a potent sort of book in the sense of the way that he writes. So he uses the word immediately all the time. Seems like Mark's like always in a hurry, like immediately this thing happened. Um, Mark is really just trying to race us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's the really the main goal for Mark. He's really trying to get us there as quick as we can. And we've been talking about it, and we, we technically started Mark next, last week, but really we've been in a sneaky way in Mark since January. Uh, our fasting and prayer season, we looked at Jesus as he was preparing for ministry in Mark chapter 1. Uh, he was fasting, he was praying, there was spiritual warfare that was going on. He was in the wilderness, the Aramos. He was in this place where he was separated away from everything else to prepare himself for what was to, to be three very rapid-paced years of ministry that Jesus was about to go through. And in Mark chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today. If you would like to follow along, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 3. But in Mark chapter 3, we really pick up the pace of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 1, we see him starting ministry. Chapter 2, he starts really pushing further and further into ministry. And then chapter 3, I feel like, is this sort of self-encapsulated sort of uh, chapter where we have these stories about Jesus, and we're going to go through those stories this morning. Uh, we're going to do it Bible study style, if that's okay with you guys. Uh, even if it's not okay, that's what I have prepared, so I'm so sorry if you don't like that. Um, uh, Bible study, we're going to look at these three stories of Jesus in Mark chapter 3. They're almost going to be like little, little sermons in and of themselves, but the whole goal is what we were just singing about. We want to hear about the life of Jesus the rhythms of Jesus, the way Jesus thought, the way Jesus acted, and we want that imparted into our lives as Christians, as many versions of Jesus. We want to walk in those same things. So this morning, as we were going through it, I just thought, you know what, let's read these stories, let's let them breathe a little bit, and let's do our best to insert ourselves into that context and know what it was like. 
Because Jesus, if we're not careful, we read this like mythology. We go, oh, wow, that was a great story. Next story, you know. But there were real people feeling real things at this time, and Jesus was one of those. And Mark talks very potently about the emotions that Jesus feels, and there's a story in here where he talks about that. But if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and we are just going to dive straight into Scripture. Here we go. 3 verse 1, he says this, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And he watched Jesus, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they, meaning the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're watching him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Because how do you answer a question like that if you're a Pharisee? And he looked at them with anger. There's Mark using emotional language around Jesus. If you thought Jesus was never angry, you were mistaken. He got angry quite a bit, but in a holy way. And he looked around them, at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So there's a softness, there's a reason why Jesus is feeling angry. He's grieved, he's saddened by their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel. Immediately, there's that word again. Immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. This story is interesting because when you're reading the Gospels, you're like, so what's so interesting about this? Jesus heals many, many people, right? There are so many stories about Jesus healing people, but a lot of the Gospel writers write this story, especially in the Synoptic Gospels. This is a very important moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this is what he was preparing for. This is what he was getting ready to do. This is the ministry that he had been building toward his whole life. And the man with the withered hand, he came into church, he came into the synagogue, and what's interesting about this story is he did not ask Jesus to heal him. Like everybody else that's crowding around Jesus to going, Jesus, heal me, I need healing, this man did not ask for healing. And there's a tension in the room, the Pharisees are mad at Jesus, there's this tension that's building, and you can almost imagine this guy was like, don't drag me into this, Jesus. Like, why now? Like, why in the synagogue? Couldn't you have, like, grabbed me after church? Like, pulled me off to the side? Like, why do you have to drag me out in front? Like, he doesn't even really say anything. Jesus didn't have to do this. This was not like a guy that came up to him and said, please heal me. And then Jesus is like, is, you know, what do you think about this, Pharisees? He goes out of his way in this moment to poke and to prod at the idea that the Pharisees had about the law. Now, the law at the time said you are not able to do any sort of medical care unless it's life-saving medical care. So clearly, Jesus and this man with the withered hand, this healing that's about to happen is not because this man's life is in danger. It is a clear violation of the Pharisaic law at the time. But Jesus looks at them, and he says something very interesting. He says, is it lawful... He doesn't say, is it lawful on the Sabbath to heal somebody? He says this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? This is very interesting. 
Jesus is laying a little different foundation. Now, in the context of the end of Mark chapter 2, when Jesus says the Sabbath, he's talking to the leaders and he says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus is taking this idea of the law and he's flipping it on its head. He's going, look, you were not created to follow the law. The law and the things that were created were created for you to flourish in your life. And he's like, look, if I heal this guy, if I pray for healing, is that good or is that bad? Is it life or is it death? Which one is it? And if you're a Pharisee, you're going to stay silent. That's what it says. They're like, I'm not going to answer that. It feels like a trap. And it kind of was. You know, it's like, hey, this is, what are we doing here? Is the Sabbath for us or is it for us to, to show each other how righteous we are? And of course, the Pharisees, that was a pushback on their whole frame of mind when it came to their approach to God. What's ironic is, is it says immediately they went to the Herodians. They had a meeting with the Herodians, which are a leader that love Herod, political group. They connect with one another, and they start to conspire to kill Jesus. Jesus gives this sort of, as he's pushing back this sort of prophetic insight to what is about to happen, he's going, look, you're saying it's wrong for me to pray for somebody to be healed, and yet you're going to go out on the Sabbath and work to have me killed. Like, you're not seeing this here. You're not seeing this correctly. Jesus saw it before it even happened. There's a sort of prophetic insight with Jesus when he asked this question. And I think these, for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we have to know that Jesus is instigating things right now. He didn't have to heal the man with a withered hand. He didn't have to call him forward in front of everybody. He didn't have to do this. And yet he is instigating things, and he is a holy instigator in this example, in this story. Now, some of you are instigators just because you're instigators, and that's not what I'm talking about. Um, uh, there, there are some of you in this room who you know who you are. You're like, I love a good controversy. I love a good argument. Like, I love stirring things up. When we look at this, we have to know that we are called to a holy instigation. It's a little bit different. Uh, I have three kids. One of the things that drives me so crazy. Like, my kids know. Like, this is one quick way to make dad very frustrated. And that's if you start instigating things with your sibling for no reason at all. Like, we're driving to California, and you start just poking your sister for no reason. And then she starts yelling, and then you hit her, and it's like, why, why did we get here? <laughs> you know, like, why, if any parents in here feel that, like, that's like, why would you instigate? I think God feels the same, just to be honest. Like, some of you just instigate for instigation's sake. And he's like, well, why are you doing that? Why are you stirring this thing up for no reason? Jesus is not stirring things up for no reason. He has a purpose in his instigation. When he looks at the Pharisees, I know a lot of times we look at the, the way that he talks to the Pharisees and we go, he must have hated those guys. No, Jesus loved the Pharisees. His language is harsh because he's trying to get their attention, going, look, you guys are not getting this. And he's using this as a holy instigation moment. Some of you are great at instigating. Some of you are not, and you know who you are too. You're like, oh, I don't want to bring it up. It's a little awkward, you know. Classic millennial word. It's a little awkward. I'm a millennial, so I could say it. Um, like, I, I get it. Like, we don't want to make things awkward, but I hate, I hate to say it, but Jesus instigates wherever he goes. He brings a little bit of tension. Before I was a follower of Jesus, 
Um, I was a you know, teenager, grew up in Tucson, didn't really have any access at all to, to the, the gospel or church. It just didn't, it wasn't a part of my life. But I, I was aware of something, and it's funny, as I look back in hindsight, I could see the reason why. Whenever anybody brought up Jesus to me, it made me mad. I didn't know why. I was like, mm, I don't want to talk about that. One time, my, who was my future mother-in-law, and I had no idea at the time, um, foolish 15-year-old Ryan had no idea, um, but we were talking in the car, and she was driving us somewhere, because we weren't 16 yet, and and uh, she said, well, you know, the Bible says this. We were having some conversation. I can't remember. And um, 15-year-old Ryan very eloquently said, well, the Bible's a bunch of crap, so I'm not going to listen to that, you know. <laughs> now, since then, I've come to realize the Bible is not a bunch of crap. And if you need some help with that, I, I don't mind talking to you after service. Um, but I went through this whole process of realizing like there was a spiritual struggle inside of me whenever I heard about Jesus, whenever I heard any truth, I just reacted negatively. I was like, uh, I don't want to do that. Some of you who avoid instigation everywhere you go, at some point as a follower of Jesus, there is some instigation that happens when you bring Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. Jesus did not promise us that everybody's going to love us, that our family's going to understand, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. Jesus never promised any of that. He said even, you know, like, I've, I've not come to bring peace. Now, he came to bring peace in our lives, peace and reconciliation with those around us, but he did not come to bring peace with the enemy. Some of you, as followers of Jesus, need to ask yourselves, where do I need to instigate a little bit? You're not fighting people, you're not mean-spirited, but if you love people, you will tell them about Jesus. And at the end of this instigation, something very serious happens, and it's easy for us, like we just did. We just read over, and we're like, oh, interesting. But the Pharisees, at the end of this story, they held a council with the Herodians who had political power, and they held that meeting to figure out how to destroy Jesus. How many of you in this room, if you found out there was a conspiracy to kill you, would act a little bit different today? <laughs> I think I'd be watching over my shoulder a lot more <laughs> if I knew that was coming. This is in the background of what is about to happen in the life of Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. Skipping ahead a little bit. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Yikes. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. This is a wild scene. This is wild. Like, it doesn't even say that Jesus is preaching any messages. There are so many people crowding around him. It's chaos. And he's telling his disciples, like, get a boat ready because I might need to bail. Like, there are so many people I might need to, like, the only place I could go that's safe is maybe out in the water. He's like, get that boat ready. And it said that he healed everybody that came near him, and he cast out demons like, this is wild, right? Like, if a movie was made about just even this short story, we'd be like, that is a wild scene. 
For a lot of people in ministry, you're like, this is the height of ministry, right? Like, you got a crowd around you. You got all these people that are like, I want to hear from you. Jesus on its surface, like, this is the height of ministry. This is like, like this juxtaposition of what he just went through, instigating things. There's this conspiracy to kill him. And then he goes on and he's doing ministry and it's exciting and it's amazing. And a lot of us who've done ministry for a long time, we have these sort of moments we think back on, right? Like I spent some time out on the road and I can think back on some of those uh, amazing times that uh, I've experienced with the Lord. Uh, Kurt Cotter, who's amazing, he's on staff with us and I love Kurt so much. He has like a childlike faith about him that is unbelievable, it's miraculous. For me, who I'm naturally kind of skeptical, I'm like amazed by it. Like he just has this childlike faith. And last year he told me, he was like, hey, this guy from Pakistan reached out to me on Facebook and wants me to be preaching the gospel. And on the inside, I was like, oh, oh, Kurt, you know, oh, man, like this guy, I think you never know. These guys like might be taking advantage of you. You have no idea, you know, but I kind of like held some of that back. I was like, okay, good. You know, like, let me know what's going on. You know, keep me posted. Kurt has now met with that guy that he met on Facebook, and he's done these digital meetings in Pakistan where he's seen thousands of people come, thousands of people come to give their life to Jesus, thousands of people healed, that he's just doing over a Zoom call in Pakistan. Like, this is amazing, right? For a lot of us, we're like, well, you know, you got to be all these special things to do ministry. No, no. I'm sorry, like all you need is childlike faith and like some basic internet and you could do some amazing things for the Lord. Like, and then, and like I was so convicted because I'm like, Kurt, I've gotten so many messages on Facebook from some guy from somewhere who's like, I want to do something. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, you know. But the Lord knew someone like Kurt would say, yeah, great, let's do it. And the fruit is unbelievable. We are all called to do ministry. It's not just for the professional few. We're all called to do ministry. It doesn't have to be with crowds, but it is with people that don't know Jesus. This is a big part of what we're called to do as Christians. And when we see this with Jesus, we go, okay, we are called to do two things. Heal people and cast out demons. Heal people and cast out demons. Now, healing people, obviously, we don't do that. Like, God does that. That's a work of the Lord. And I've told the story uh, probably a few weeks back um, when I was in Ecuador, and I was just there. Long story short, I was praying for this, this kid to, to be healed, and he asked me many times, like, hey, can you pray again? Can you pray again? I was getting pretty skeptical, and by like the third time I prayed for him, he was like, I'm completely healed. And I, <laughs> and I remember going, are you sure? You know, like, are, are you sure it's all better? Like, all gone, you know? And it's amazing. Anytime the Lord comes crashing in, and does something miraculous, it makes children out of all of us, right? We're like, I don't, I don't really know what happened. Like the man that, that, you know, was healed by Jesus, and he was like, I don't, I don't know what you guys are getting at. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. That's all I know. And when God comes in those sort of miraculous ways, we're like kids again. We go, wow, Lord, I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know what, you know. But you could bring healing to people in all sorts of ways, in relationships, just listening to them. I mean, there are ways that we, uh, as Paul said, this ministry of reconciliation that God has called us to, 
There are so many ways for us to do that, to bring healing to a hurting world around us. And everywhere we step our feet, we as followers of Christian have the as followers of Jesus have the opportunity to bring hope and peace and light everywhere we go. Now, with that comes the tension of casting out demons. The tension of pushing back against the darkness. That's how we phrase it here at Living Streams. David gave a great message a couple weeks ago about spiritual warfare. There are ways for us to push back against the darkness, push back against the enemy. And when you're following Jesus and when you're looking for opportunities to tell people about Jesus, that tension comes. That tension comes. But moving on, Jesus, in, uh, starting in verse 20, it says this, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. There it is again. So Jesus, again, he's got crowds around him. He's got his tight group, his twelve. And Jesus, like, he, he makes everything about these 12. He even preaches confusing messages to the crowds and then takes his disciples aside later and is like, let me tell you what I was actually saying. Like, that's the opposite of most people who are looking to build crowds, right? Like, they're like, unload your best stuff on all the people and then, you know, give your leftovers to your disciples. No, Jesus flipped it on its head and he poured into these 12 that became like a family to him. So Jesus is in this height of ministry. It's exciting. There are crowds. There is fruit. People being set free. People being healed. People being delivered. And then he's got this inside group, these 12, and it's a very exciting moment. And then, as is often the case in life, the enemy comes in and hits him in a very soft spot, which is a soft spot for everybody, and that's in his family. Pick it back up in verse 20. It says this. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, to forcefully grab him. And they were saying, he is out of his mind. Before we skip over this, you have to, again, put yourself in Jesus' shoes here. He goes into the synagogue and he stirs things up with very powerful people who are now conspiring literally to kill him. And we know and he knows that they are going to at some point be successful in that. He's got the crowds and he's got the 12 disciples, but in the background he knows there's this tension. And his family is seeing this. And his family, like, they know the Immaculate Conception. They know all of these things about Jesus. And yet they're going, look, Jesus, you had so much potential. Don't throw it away. Like, you are making all the powerful people so frustrated at you that they're conspiring to kill you. Like, they have to know this. And then if you've got powerful people mad at you, one of the last things you do is build a huge crowd of people around you because that makes the people in power what? more threatened, more angry. Like this chapter 3 right here is this linchpin in Jesus' ministry where you start to see he's not just bringing great stuff, but he's bringing tension. And his family is worried about him. And Mark doesn't hold back on what they think. 
What they think is Jesus has lost his mind. They're like, he's a little crazy. This is a real, real tension that happens. When I first started following Jesus, I had friends that I did all sorts of, you know, unchristian partying with and all sorts of stuff with. I became a Christian, and they all looked at me like I was crazy. I mean, I would hang out with them, and then, you know, it's like still dabbling, but I was in that in-between where I'm like, I've accepted Jesus, but I still want to hang out with my friends. And, and I started telling them about Jesus, and they were like, it wasn't just that they thought I was weird or they thought I was making them uncomfortable. They thought I was crazy. They were like, I think you might have joined a cult or something. Like, you should be, like, you should take this slow, Ryan. Take, really take this slow, you know? I was the first Christian in my family. My family had the same sort of reservations. Like, uh, are you sure, you know? You want to go on the mission field instead of, like, college? Are you sure you want to do that? I had so many people, and it was a very lonely season, if I'm being honest. It was a very lonely season where I'm like, I'm choosing to follow Jesus in a way that's very different than people that I've grown up experiencing, and people are worried about me, and I have moments where I'm like, Lord, did I join a cult? Like, is there something wrong here? That is the kind of tension that happens when you turn yourself over to the will of God you turn yourself over to Jesus in the way that he asks us to do it. And he does ask us to do it, to pick up our cross and follow him. When Jesus mentions crucifixion, you got to realize crucifixion, that word in the original Greek was like, like a bad word. Like you wouldn't say that word in polite society because it made everybody very uncomfortable. Because they all knew it was this very painful very dark stain on what they were doing as a culture. And Jesus was like, pick up your cross and follow me. People had to be like, what are you talking about? Jesus asks for everything. But in return, he gives us something better. So all of this is building, right? We've got the Pharisees, we've got the, we've got the, uh, the crowds, we've got the 12 disciples, and the end of Mark chapter 3 ends with this. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So again, you got to know, they think he's crazy. They're like going to get him. They're going to grab him forcefully and go, Jesus, just lay low. Stop doing ministry. Just hang out at home for a little bit until the heat dies down. And then hopefully we could get you back on some stable ground. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him. I love that. Like, again, Mark is explaining this, like, sort of pause. Jesus looking at everybody that's around him. And he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus never takes something from us without giving us something better in return. He never takes something from us without giving us something in return. Now, some of you, when you started following Jesus, it cost you a lot. And I get it. 
Maybe it costs you family. Maybe it costs you friends. For some of you, like maybe you feel called into something that you go, that's going to cost me a lot. And I'm not talking about money. Just it's going to cost a lot of me to do that. And Jesus is standing here going, yeah, it is. It's going to require everything that you've got. But let me tell you what I give you in return is even better. What he gives us whenever we sacrifice family or or things for following Jesus, he gives us a new family, and it's called the church. And he paid for it with his blood. It was not cheap. This new family that Jesus got for you and me, it was not cheap, and it was not easy to get. And family hurts sometimes. You know, we talk about church hurt. There is church hurt for sure. If you've been at a church for longer than like a year, maybe five minutes, I don't know. <laughs> Chances are you've been hurt by somebody in the church, right? I think we all feel that. I, I could stand up here and say, I've been hurt by people in the church. I've been hurt by people in this church. Just like I've been hurt by people in my family. Just like you've been hurt by people in your family. Even if you have a really great childhood. I, you realize that as a parent. It's so humbling. Where you're like, I feel like I did a great job. And then you get later on, you're like, I didn't do that great of a job. I'm so sorry. Like, I missed it. I did as good as I could for a 25-year-old or whatever it is, you know. Because we're all imperfect. But the family of God, though it is a place where you get hurt, it's a place where you get healing. It's a place where you get sharper. It's a gift from God to be around the people who follow, follow the Lord, want to hear what he wants us to do, and says, yeah, I'll do it. This is family. Like if I go to, you know, China, and I meet a believer in China, it's my brother or my sister, right? Like we're instantly connected. I've experienced that so often on the missionary field. You get to another country, and you're like, their music is different. Their church service is different. It goes a lot longer than it does in America. Whatever it is, it's like things are so different. And yet, this is my family. Like there's this connection that happens across cultures and languages. It doesn't matter. Jesus bridges all of that because we've been brought into this new family. And when you get hurt by the church, which it'll happen... We always have the choice to say, Lord, push me into the deeper things of you. And maybe this church is trying to teach me something. Maybe this situation, Lord, you're trying to teach me something. This family is vitally important. And Jesus paid for it by his blood. And this is where I'm going to land this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of time with you and the Lord before we take communion together. But... um, You know, we talk about the, the works that Jesus has called us to, and some of that was in here. You know, where do we need to instigate with the Lord? What kind of ministry do we have in front of us that we need to walk in? What kind of backlash can we expect? Because backlash comes when you follow Jesus. But none of it is there for its own sake. Just like Jesus said, Sabbath is not given to, man is not given to Sabbath, but Sabbath is given to the man. Like, this is a gift to us. And the works that God has laid out in front of us for us to walk in, like Paul said, those good works are for us to walk in. 
They're good. They are good things, right? Because Jesus loves us. He wants us to be co-laborers with him. What, a, what an honor. What an amazing thing. But it does cost us something. I think that's the tension of anybody who's ever stood where I'm standing right now. Is Jesus is easy to invite into your heart. But living for him requires everything. Requires everything. You gotta, you gotta count the cost, like Jesus said. I want you to take just a minute between you and the Lord. And I want you to ask a couple of things. First, what things is he asking you to walk in? Just ask that question. Lord, what are some things you want me to walk in? And then create a little space to hear what is his heart behind that thing that he wants you to walk in. Just take, take a minute or so between you and the Lord, and then we're going to take communion together.